Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Thank you for joining us for March 13, 2023, Monday's reading of the Gazette. My name is Pat Middleton. Today we will be reading the following main articles. Waiting Period on Gun Buys Advances, written by Marianne Goodland. It is a never-go-back event, written by Mary Shin and Brooke Nevins. Some 14ers have closed after legal wrangle. What's next? Written by Seth Boster. High Court to Hear Appeals, written by Michael Carlick. Starting on this morning's front page. Waiting period on gun buys advances. Lawmakers give early approval to gun control package by Marianne Goodland. After two days of debate and filibuster, the Democrats who control the majority in both chambers of the Colorado General Assembly approved a package of proposals they say will help curb gun violence in the state. The House on Saturday signed off on House Bill 1219, which establishes a three-day waiting period after purchasing a firearm but before delivery of that weapon. House Republicans staged a filibuster on the bill for 14 hours, beginning early Thursday afternoon and continuing into early Friday morning. The most significant change to the bill came from a Republican-sponsored amendment to remove its safety clause, which would have allowed the measure to become law with the governor's signature. Instead, House Bill 1219 now has a petition clause, which would allow citizens to petition for a ballot measure for voters to decide on the law as soon as the 2024 general election. That mechanism has only been used twice since 1932, on a bill that year on oleomargarine, and in 2020 when two Republicans now in the State House launched a campaign to overturn Colorado's participation in the national popular vote. That campaign made it to the 2020 ballot, but voters approved the legislature's decision. Lawmakers avoided a filibuster on Saturday as third reading votes, that's when the full chamber votes on a measure, limit the amount of time someone can speak to 10 minutes each but most of the Republicans used the maximum time allotted to make one final push for votes against the measure, leading to a debate of more than three hours. Lawmakers split 44 to 20 on House Bill 1219, with two Democrats voting with Republicans. That included a no vote from Representative Saeed Charbini, Democrat Thornton, who also voted against the bill when it was heard in the House State Veterans and Military Affairs Committee on Wednesday, as well as from Representative Bob Marshall, Democrat Highlands Ranch. The Senate worked on the other three bills for about 13 hours on Friday, adjourning just before midnight. The longest debate occurred over Senate Bill 170, which seeks to broaden the list of those who can seek an extreme risk protection order, better known as Colorado's red flag law, to remove firearms from someone who is considered a danger to themselves or to the others. State Bill 170 adds district attorneys 
healthcare providers, including mental health professionals, and educators at both the K-12 and higher education levels to those who can seek the red flag petition. Currently, petitions can be sought only by law enforcement and family and other household members. The second bill, Senate Bill 168, allows gun victims to sue for damages in civil court against firearms manufacturers as well as dealers. The measure is a workaround to a 2005 federal law known as the Protection of Lawful Commerce in Arms Act, which has shielded the firearms industry from civil lawsuits. State Bill 170 was amended with several technical changes on Friday, while State Bill 168 was not amended during the debate. This wasn't the case for the third bill, Senate Bill 169, which, as first reported by Colorado Politics early Friday, was rewritten with a major amendment offered by co-sponsor Senator Kyle Mullica, Democrat Thornton. State Bill 168 bans the sale or possession of firearms for those between the ages of 18 and 21. Current law allows 18-year-olds to purchase and possess firearms. As a rationale for the legislation, supporters pointed to mass shootings increasingly being committed by those under the age of 21, including at Columbine and the STEM school in Highlands Ranch. The Mullica Amendment addressed a host of concerns about conflicts the law would create for rural Coloradans and for young people who want to participate in hunter education programs offered by the Colorado Division of Parks and Wildlife. Those programs are available to those as young as 10 years old. As introduced, the bill allowed those under 21 to use a firearm only with the supervision of an immediate family member over 25. As amended in the State Veterans and Military Affairs Committee Wednesday, the bill created an affirmative defense for Coloradans who must defend livestock from predators. Mulca told Colorado Politics that language is also used in the state's safe storage law and added he is trying to be consistent with that law. The three Senate bills are slated for a final vote in the Senate on Monday. Meanwhile, House Bill 1219 now heads to the Senate. It is a never-go-back event. COVID-19 pandemic crisis helps to accelerate innovations in remote health care by Mary Shin and Brooke Nevins. When the coronavirus started sweeping through Colorado three years ago, protecting hospitals' ability to care for the sickest patients was at the center of public life a driving reason behind masks and limiting gatherings. Waves of the virus hampered hospital care workers for years, causing exhaustion, burnout, and staffing shortages that they are still recovering from. But it also helped shape the delivery of health care and accelerated the trend toward caring for more people at home through telehealth visits and remote monitoring. It is a never-go-back event, said Dr. David Steinbrunner, Chief Medical Officer for UC Health Memorial Hospital Central and Memorial Hospital North. Before the pandemic, the federal government hadn't appreciated the value of remote care, but coronavirus made it essential and it has proven to help patients, particularly those with chronic diseases, get more involved in their care, he said. Last year, UC Health provided 348,000 
virtual primary care and specialty care visits. Dr. Ozzy Granardo, Chief Clinical Officer with Centennial Base Centura Health, specializes in family medicine and said telehealth communication also made routine patient visits more efficient by eliminating travel and wait times. He said he saw half of his patients via telehealth visits for nearly two years. Telehealth really opened up opportunities for people to access care in ways they couldn't get before, Granardo said. Patients loved the quick, easy access. For Elizabeth Betty Henley, remote monitoring help through UC Health has helped calm her nerves around a recent diabetes diagnosis triggered by the steroids she needs to take following her heart transplant in December. There had to be a way to monitor this and give me a life, said Henley, who lives in Ellicott. Her doctors expected the medications to trigger the diabetes, but for Henley, it is still a new health challenge with symptoms that can feel similar to side effects from anti-rejection drugs she must take for her new heart. To help manage her condition, UC Health set her up with an app that allows healthcare providers to help her keep a close eye on blood sugar levels from an office in Denver. For example, when her blood sugar levels spiked, a condition that can make a patient shaky, confused, and even lose consciousness, UC Health providers called her within half an hour to advise her. When her levels are too high, she needs to drink lots of water and eat protein, such as a hard-boiled egg. Such close monitoring helps her avoid playing phone tag with doctor's offices and trips to the hospital. Without it, she would be far more anxious about her fluctuating blood sugar levels. I would be very concerned about why it is going up and down. I would be very nervous, Henley said. Before the pandemic, Amy Hassel, Director of Patient Services for UC Health's Virtual Health Center, said the move toward more virtual care for diabetics was discussed in part because of an endocrinologist shortage. At the time, staff weighed whether remote care would be accepted. The pandemic lightly accelerated change toward greater health care at home, a model she sees as the future, she said. People are more open to this than they would have been before the pandemic, Hassel said. It's also proven effective with patients achieving the same level of progress in three to four months that would take a year to two years with in-person care, she said. In the past, patients could have presented a health care provider with a paper record of blood sugar levels or data from their glucometer. But now, technicians and diabetes educators work with patients weekly and get in touch with patients immediately when they receive alerts that a patient's blood sugars have reached critical levels, Hassel and her team said. Some patients hesitate to graduate from the program because of the accountability it has provided, said Kimberly Vigliata, a clinical diabetes educator. Real-time feedback and coaching from our amazing team is really what made the difference, Hassel said. Remote monitoring can also make the most of limited staff. Many healthcare workers, including nurses, retired or changed careers amid intense pandemic working conditions. Granardo, with Centura Health, said that while the virus has reached a more endemic nature, present but with less drastic disruptions to the population, and is causing fewer hospitalizations, 
The vast burnout among healthcare workers has compounded over the years and hasn't gone away. Care providers initially facing overwhelming case numbers and patient deaths as well as an increase of violence against healthcare workers as the pandemic continues has spurred them to look elsewhere, he said. If you have that versus a job that pays either the same or more, but without that stress, that's a decision people are having to make about staying in healthcare, Gernardo said. Gernardo said that the exodus of workers has left remaining staff with even more patients to care for and duties to perform and has left organizations with less knowledge capital for effective training pipelines. To retain and recruit staff, he said, Centura can employ further human resources practices for a more supportive work environment paired with hiring practices, such as a recent $30,000 signing bonus incentive for night shift nurses who join the company and work at least one year full or part-time. While UC Health is getting back up to fully staffed, it is a little thinner on the ground with experienced nurses, Steinbrunner said. Many healthcare employers hired numerous newly graduated workers to fill positions who learned in largely virtual environments. UC Health launched a clinical education resource nurse program in fall 2021 to connect new graduates with experienced nurses to help them with questions so new nurses always have someone to call on, Steinbrunner said. The hospital system also launched a tuition reimbursement program and covers 100% of the cost of continuing education for people interested in positions such as pharmacy technician, medical assistant, phlebotomy technician, counseling and social work. As of January 31st, 108 employees have completed a program and 805 are enrolled in programs, hospital spokeswoman Carrie Vogren said. The hospital system has also launched a course to help fill operating room nurse positions. We have done things to make this a place you want to work, said Steinbrunner, the chief medical officer. Central is expanding capacity by adding 40 beds to help meet demand driven in part by community growth and possibly by patients having delayed care during the pandemic, he said. The new beds are expected online this year. To help address the mental and behavioral health needs exacerbated by the pandemic, UC Health has integrated behavioral health services into 48 of its 62 primary care clinics, with full integration expected soon, Bogren said. The CU Anschutz Medical Campus in Aurora is also adding 40 inpatient beds for behavioral health this summer that will serve the state, she said. However, the shortage of healthcare workers is expected to persist, with the Colorado Hospital Association predicting by 2026 the state will have a shortage of 10,000 registered nurses and 54,000 lower wage workers, such as nursing assistants. Looking ahead, the state has made efforts within the last year to re-engage and recruit healthcare workers, including passing legislation that requires hospitals to enact nurse staffing committees to guide state-set minimum staffing requirements, efforts to promote the health, safety, and welfare of employees and patients, and reducing nurse-to-patient ratios in a bid to reduce stress on overworked providers. Kara Welch, a spokesperson for CHA, said the pandemic also brought a new era of collaboration 
between urban hospitals that learned how to balance statewide patient loads, share resources, and help guide rural hospitals that saw later virus surges. The lessons learned from that collaboration will certainly help in a future event, even if it looks quite different than the challenges we saw from COVID-19, Welch said. Some 14ers have closed after legal wrangle. What's next? By Seth Boster. Owners of properties where Coloradans hike and play in the outdoors had hoped to feel better about allowing that access after a hearing this month at the state capitol. Instead, some are feeling more worried than ever. That includes Patrick Shilkin, who has long held land along the base of 14,000-foot Mount Sherman in Park County. It's not a popular area for climbers, but Shilkin has still often come by lost or ambitious types. He's an attorney, knowing all too well about what he and others have seen as a gaping hole in the Colorado Recreational Use Statute opened by a court ruling in 2019, which awarded a mountain biker more than $7 million for injuries sustained on a ride around the Air Force Academy. From that point on, we've been fighting pretty fervently to try to limit our exposure to liability, Shilkin said. By we, he means other landowners who were joined by more than two dozen statewide recreation groups, water managers, and government agencies in support of an amendment to the Colorado Recreational Use Statute. State Bill 103 was shot down by the Senate Judiciary Committee. The response was immediate from John Reber, who owns mining claims along the trail skirting Mounts Lincoln, Democrat, and Bross. With his posted closure, the multi-peak route, known as Decalebron, is no longer available to the tens of thousands of people who venture it every year. Leading up to the Judiciary Committee's hearing, Reber said his insurance carrier had notified him of dropping that coverage. That, combined with no real relief regarding liability from the legislature, that made me decide that, boy, I really need to protect my family, said Reber, who has mostly kept his mountain swaths open for decades. That's been against suggestions from attorneys in recent years, he said. I've been advised more than once that the best thing I could do is make my land no trespassing. That's why Shilkin is planning to do that's what Shilkin is planning to do at his side of Mount Sherman. It's as he heard an associate say, if I was advising anyone, I would tell them to close it down. I think he's right. It could be the thinking of more landowners spotting Colorado's recreation landscape, advocates say. Mark Baisley, the Republican senator from Teller County who sponsored State Bill 103, said he has heard from several concerned individuals who have allowed people to fish or boat streams through their property or hunt or ride horses through their pastures. I think the dominoes will keep falling. I think you'll see people putting up no trespassing signs everywhere. Boulder Climbing Community is among groups that supported the proposed amendment and signed an online petition to continue the push. The organization's board chair, Annalise Steele, in a letter listed several crags at potential risk of closure under the current Colorado Recreational Statute, areas in Boulder Canyon and along El Dorado Mountain, as well as routes on the west side of Clear Creek Canyon. That's over 250 routes in some of the most popular climbing areas 
in Colorado, Steele wrote. She added of the proposed amendment, this may sound like a small change, but it has big consequences for public access. The proposed change centered on the word willful in the Colorado Recreational Use Statute. The law exposes landowners to lawsuit if they demonstrate willful or malicious failure to guard or warn against a known dangerous condition. In 2019, a federal appeals court determined the Air Force Academy knew about a washed-out trail that resulted in mountain biker James Nelson's injuries. That was the only case of its kind in 26 years, Carrie Jones Dolan, representing Colorado Trial Lawyers Association, said in her opposition to Senate Bill 103 before the Judiciary Committee. She started her testimony by saying, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. The statute, Jones Dolan argued, has worked to both protect the landowner and those that enjoy the land for recreational use. And the word willful was important, she said. All that it asks of a landowner is, if you know something is dangerous and likely to cause harm, either guard against it or warn against it, which is to say, if you know something, do something. Isn't that just basic human decency? The committee voted three to two against the change on partisan lines, three no votes by Democrats, two yes votes by Republicans. In Colorado Springs, Trails and Open Space Executive Director Susan Davies said the decision was heartbreaking. Her group has led a decades-long effort to complete the Ring the Peak Trail, a full loop around Pikes Peak. She said success will depend on private landowners allowing corridors like 14-owning 14, Reber and Shilkin, who feel their knowledge of inherent danger in the backcountry makes them vulnerable. It starts with willing landowners, Davies said of Ring the Peak, and this is really a blow to securing willing landowners. Ring the Peak also involves Colorado Springs Utilities, which was listed as another supporter of State Bill 103. Denver Water, overseeing premier recreation areas like Dillon Reservoir and Waterton Canyon, was also monitoring the bill. Denver Water declined to comment for this article, but in an email said it didn't have any immediate concerns. Anyone not concerned, advocates recognized, might have come away from the Judiciary Committee decision believing what the opposing trial lawyers said, that the recreational use statute protects landowners and that the Nelson case was an outlier. But it appears some 14ers will be off limits this summer and it's likely other areas will be fenced off said Nicole Boudin, the Colorado Mountain Club's policy director. That's a pretty clear sign that this is a problem now, that the Colorado Recreational Use Statute is not working as intended, she said. In recent years, the trail to 14,000-foot Mount Lindsay, crossing parts of Trinchera Blanca Ranch, has also been marked for no trespassing. On land it owns along Mount Shivano, Colorado 14ers Initiative has posted several signs warning of dangers and unpredictable circumstances in the high alpine. If we had a sign go missing from a rockfall or an avalanche, or I guess somebody could steal it, does that mean we're, we're still liable, said Brian Sargent, Colorado 14er Initiative's Development and Communications Manager. The signs are high on hard-to-reach terrain, he noted, and we don't have cameras up there to see if they are up there every single day.
moving to local and state news. High Court to Hear Appeals Colorado Supreme Court takes up drunken driving cases, campus sexual misconduct dispute by Michael Carlick. The Colorado Supreme Court last week agreed to review appeals that implicate the state's drunken driving laws and the legal obligation of universities to, to conduct fair investigations into alleged sexual misconduct. At least three of the court's seven members must consent to review a case. One appeal raises yet another angle in the long-running fallout from the Supreme Court's recent reinterpretation of Colorado's 2015 felony drunken driving law, while another examines what constitutes a driver's refusal to take a chemical test if police suspect they are intoxicated. The justices also showed interest in an ongoing parental rights case out of Douglas County, in which the father alleges his ex-wife is weaponizing a judge's order against him to halt all visitations with his children. In 2020, the Supreme Court ruled that the state's law for fel felony driving under the influence, enacted five years prior, operated differently from how judges were applying it. Typically, a jury would find a defendant guilty of the charged DUI offense, which is ordinarily a misdemeanor, and a judge would later determine if the defendant had at least three prior DUIs. If the answer was yes, the misdemeanor conviction would become a felony. That decision, Lineber v. People, meant juries now have to decide both questions. But Lineber triggered many other legal conundrums for the Supreme Court to deal with. And there is now another one for the justices to consider that has implications broader than the DUI law. Specifically, if a defendant is convicted under one understanding of the law, but the law changes while the appeal is pending, what happens then? When the defense does not raise an objection at trial, the appellate courts review the alleged error by asking if it was plain or obvious. Plain error is normally a difficult standard for defendants to meet. The U.S. Supreme Court, however, has recognized that defendants will not object when the law appears settled, so an unobjected to error can be treated as plain on appeal if there is a change in law. A Boulder County jury convicted Charles James Crabtree of DUI in 2019, and a judge elevated it to a felony after finding Crabtree had prior offenses. Then the state Supreme Court decided Lineber. Consequently, a three-judge panel for the Court of Appeals reversed Crabtree's felony conviction, agreeing the error of not submitting the prior offenses to the jury was plain at the time of appeal. The procedure employed in Crabtree's trial is clearly contrary to the law, wrote Judge Terry Fox in June. The Colorado Attorney General's Office appealed, arguing for the state Supreme Court to reject the time of appeal standard and only look at whether an unobjected to legal error is obvious at the time of the trial. The Supreme Court agreed to review the issues raised by the government and declined to look at Crabtree's self-representation. Colorado has an expressed consent law in which motorists have automatically consented to taking a blood or breath test if an officer has probable cause to suspect them of impaired driving. If drivers refuse a test, the refusal can be used against them at trial and is grounds for revoking their driver's license. Glenn Gary Montoya rear-ended a vehicle in Arapahoe County 
and the responding officer believed him to be drunk. After hearing about the express consent law, Montoya agreed to take a blood test for his alcohol level. At the detox facility, Montoya wavered about whether to take the test before saying, I don't think I'm going to do it. About 90 minutes after the accident, the officer recorded Montoya on his body camera, saying he refused the blood test, and that was what Montoya's jury saw. Jurors convicted him of felony DUI. What they did not know, however, was that Montoya changed his mind again shortly after the refusal and within the two-hour testing window established in the law. But the trial judge refused to allow jurors to hear that statement, believing it was self-serving and would confuse the jury. The Court of Appeals reversed Montoya's DUI conviction. The panel synthesized multiple elements of the express consent law to conclude that drivers are not allowed to change what type of test they choose, but changing their mind on whether to cooperate is still possible. Looking to cases that dealt with driver license revocations, the panel determined a refusal to take a test within the two-hour window depends on whether the test can still be administered in time. The panel also deemed it wrong to shield the jury from Montoya's final statement, indicating he would cooperate after all. The Supreme Court will review both conclusions from the Court of Appeals. Under the federal law known as Title IX, educational programs may not exclude or discriminate against anyone on the basis of sex. Although the protections apply to college students, largely female, who are victims of sexual misconduct, increasingly students who have been found liable for misconduct, mostly male, are challenging the fairness of those investigations. The University of Denver expelled John Doe after concluding he engaged in non-consensual sex with female student Jane Rowe in violation of campus policy. Doe sued, alleging several deficiencies in the university's handling of the case, such as interviewing 11 of the victim's witnesses, but only one of Doe's. Doe first received a favorable ruling from the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Tenth Circuit, which in 2021 reinstated his lawsuit after finding the combination of Doe's allegations plus data suggesting disparate treatment of male students combined to form a viable claim. Then last year, the State Court of Appeals gave Doe another victory in his related lawsuit. The appellate court decided DU's promise of a thorough, impartial, and fair investigation was concrete enough to be subject to a breach of contract claim that a jury or judge would decide. Also, it concluded DU owed Doe a duty to adopt fair investigative procedures. State Expands Access to DNA Testing After Convictions by Hannah Metzger Colorado updated its post-conviction DNA testing law for the first time since it was established in 2003 with the signing of House Bill 1034 on Friday. Under the current law, only three people in Colorado have been exonerated of crimes for DNA-related reasons in the last two decades. Beginning on October 1, 2023, the bill will increase eligibility for people convicted of felonies to receive DNA testing, allowing recourse for those who may have been falsely convicted. Governor Jared Polis signed the bipartisan-sponsored bill into law following unanimous approval from the state Senate and House last month. 
We want to make sure we get the right person responsible for a crime, Polis said. This bill will go a long way towards making Colorado safer. Current law only allows people who are actively incarcerated to receive DNA testing, but the bill will open it up to people on felony parole, registered sex offenders, people who have completed their sentences, and people who were found not guilty by reason of insanity. The bill will also permit courts to order DNA testing if there is, an, if there is a reasonable pro probability that the person would not have been convicted if DNA testing produced a favorable result at trial. We heard incredible testimony in committee about folks being wrongly convicted and not able to access testing, which is what this bill does, said bill sponsor, Representative Lindsay Dougherty, Democrat, Arvada. I'm incredibly proud to have worked on this bill. Robert Ryder Dewey is one of the three Coloradans exonerated for DNA-related reasons under the current law. Dewey spent nearly 18 years in prison after being sentenced to life for the rape and murder of a 19-year-old Palisade woman in 1994. While testifying in support of the new bill, Dewey said he repeatedly requested DNA testing while in prison, but was denied for years until connecting with the Innocence Project in 2007. Even then, the testing wasn't completed until 2010, and the conviction wasn't overturned until 2012. Dewey said he can't stress the importance of DNA testing enough. When I was in there, my son died. My only child, Dewey said in his testimony. I've got titanium from my first vertebrate to my pelvis now because of all the stomping I got. They could have saved me a lot of headaches. Moving to national and world headlines. U.S. seeks to quell risk of bank run. FDIC auctions SVB assets as Treasury's Yellen focuses on protecting depositors. By Bloomberg News. U.S. regulators are racing against the clock to find solutions for failed Silicon Valley Bank, while Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen said officials are focusing on protecting depositors as officials seek to avoid a wider bank run. After Silicon Valley Bank collapsed into receivership on Friday in the biggest bank failure in more than a decade, the Federal Deposit Insurance Cor Corporation kicked off an auction process for its assets late Saturday as it aims to make a portion of clients' uninsured deposits available as soon as Monday, according to people with knowledge of the situation. The agency and the Federal Reserve have also discussed a fund to backstop deposits if more banks fail as part of wider contingency planning, people said. Those efforts are aimed at protecting depositors rather than bailing out investors, Yellen said on CBS's Face the Nation on Sunday. During the financial crisis, there were investors and owners of systemic large banks that were bailed out, the Treasury Secretary said, and were certainly not looking and the reforms that have been put in place means that we're not going to do that again. But we are concerned about depositors and we're focused on trying to meet their needs. Democratic Representative Ro Khan, whose California district is home to Silicon Valley Bank, said the FDIC is working to find a buyer and urged the U.S. government to guarantee all of the bank's deposits. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, a Republican from California, told Fox News' Sunday Morning Futures he's hopeful that something can be announced today to move forward. 
Concern about the health of other smaller banks focused on the venture capital and startup communities is prompting regulators to consider extraordinary measures. Officials have discussed the new fund to backstop deposits in conversations with banking executives in the hope setting up such a vehicle would reassure depositors and help contain any panic, said the people. They asked not to be identified because the talks weren't public. In her CBS interview, Yellen renewed assurances that the U.S. banking system is safe, well-capitalized, and resilient. I simply want to say that we're very aware of the problems that depositors will have, she said. Many of them are small businesses that employ people across the country, and of course, this is a significant concern. U.S. regulators are under time pressure to sell assets of Silicon Valley Bank Financial Group, the bank's parent. Russian advance stalls in Bakhmut, think tank says, from the Associated Press. Russia's advance seems to have stalled in Moscow's campaign to capture the eastern Ukrainian city of Bakhmut, a leading think tank said in an assessment of the longest ground battle of the war. The Washington-based Institute for the Study of War said there were no confirmed advances by Russian forces in Bakhmut. Russian forces and units from the Kremlin-controlled paramilitary Wagner Group continued to launch ground attacks in the city, but there was no evidence that they were able to make any progress, the Institutes for the Study of War said. The founder of the Wagner Group, Prizhin, said Sunday on the Telegram messaging app that the situation in Bakhmut was difficult, very difficult, with the enemy fighting for each meter. The Institute for the study of war report issued Saturday cited the spokesperson of the Ukrainian Armed Forces Eastern Group, Serhiel Cheravati, who said fighting in the Bakhmut area has intensified. According to Cheravati, there were 23 clashes over the previous 24 hours. The Institute for the Study of War's report comes following claims of Russian progress earlier this week. The assessment highlighted that Russia's assault will be difficult to sustain without more significant personnel losses. The mining city of Bakhmut is located in Ukraine's eastern Donetsk province, one of four regions of Ukraine that Russian President Putin illegally annexed last year. North Korea launches missile from submarine in test from the Associated Press. North Korea said Monday it has conducted submarine-launched cruise missile test days after its leader, Kim Jong-un, ordered his troops to be ready to repel its rivals' frantic war preparation moves. The test on Sunday came a day before the U.S. and South Korean militaries begin large-scale joint military drills that North Korea views as a rehearsal for invasion. The official Korean Central News Agency said Monday that the missile launchers were meant to confirm the reliability of the weapons system and gauge underwater-to-service offensive operations of the country's submarine units. Coming off a record year in missile testing, North Korea's weapons demonstrations this year include test launches of an intercontinental ballistic missile, short-range missiles, and a purported long-range cruise missile system in recent weeks. Experts say North Korea's escalated test testing 
and threats are meant to claim an ability to conduct nuclear strikes in South Korea and against the U.S. mainland. Sunday's missile test showed the North's resolve to respond forcefully to the U.S. imperialists. Biden continues to weigh willow but blocks other oil drilling in Alaska from the Associated Press. As President Joe Biden prepares a final decision on the huge willow oil project in Alaska, he will prevent or limit oil drilling in 16 million acres in Alaska and the Arctic Ocean, an administration official said on Sunday. The announcement expected on Monday morning would bar drilling in nearly 3 million acres of the Arctic Ocean closing off the rest of its federal waters from oil exploration and limit drilling in more than 13 million acres in a vast swath of land known as the National Petroleum Reserve Alaska. The official requested anonymity to discuss the conservation effort before it is officially unveiled. The moves come as regulators prepare to announce a final decision on the Willow Project, a controversial oil drilling plan pushed by ConocoPhillips in the Petroleum Reserve. Climate activists have rallied against the Willow Project, calling it a carbon bomb that would be a betrayal of Biden's campaign pledges, pledges to curb new oil and gas drilling. Meanwhile, Alaska lawmakers, unions, and indigenous communities have pressured Biden to approve the project, saying it would bring much-needed jobs and billions of dollars in taxes and mitigation funds to the vast, snow and ice covered region nearly 600 miles from Anchorage. Biden's decision on Willow will be one of his most consequential climate decisions and comes as he gears up for a likely re-election bid in 2024. A decision to approve Willow risks alienating young voters who have urged stronger climate action by the White House and could spark protests similar to those against the failed Keystone XL oil pipeline during the Obama administration. Rejection of the project would meet strong resistance from Alaska's bipartisan congressional delegation, which met with top officials at the White House in recent days to lobby for the project. Republican Senator Lisa Murkowski, who provided key support to confirm Interior Secretary Deb Haaland, said it was no secret she has cooperated with the White House on a range of issues. Cooperation goes both ways, she told reporters. Haaland, who fought the Willow Project as a member of Congress, has the final decision on whether to approve it, although top White House climate officials are likely to be involved with input from Biden himself. The White House said no final decision on Willow has been reached. Under the conservation plan set to be announced, Biden would bar drilling in nearly 3 million acres of the Arctic Ocean and impose new protections in the Petroleum Reserve. The proposed Willow Project is within the reserve, a century-old designation the size of Indiana. About half of the reserve is off-limits to oil and gas leasing under an Obama-era rule reinstituted by the Biden administration last year. Areas to be protected include the Teshapuk Lake, Utukok Uplands, Colville River, Kasagaluk Lagoon, and Pearl Bay Special Areas, the official said. In 2015, President Barack Obama halted exploration in coastal areas of the Beaufort and Chukchi Seas, and he later withdrew most other potential Arctic Ocean lease areas, about 98% of the Arctic Outer Continental Shelf. 
Pence says former president endangered my family on January 6th from the Associated Press. Former Vice President Mike Pence on Saturday harshly criticized former President Donald Trump for his role in the January 6th riot at the U.S. Capitol, widening the rift between the two men as they prepared a battle over the Republican nomination in next year's election. President Trump was wrong, Pence said, during remarks at the annual white tie gridiron dinner attended by politicians and journalists. I had no right to overturn the election, and his reckless words endangered my family and everyone at the Capitol that day, and I know history will hold Donald Trump accountable. Pence's remarks were the sharpest condemnation yet from the once loyal lieutenant who has often shied away from confronting his former boss. Trump has already declared his candidacy. Pence has not, but he's been laying the groundwork to run. In the days leading up to January 6, 2021, Trump pressured Pence to overturn President Joe Biden's election victory as he presided over the ceremonial certification of the results. Pence refused, and when rioters stormed the Capitol, some chanted that they wanted to hang Mike Pence. The House committee that investigated the attack said in its final report that the President of the United States had riled up a mob that hunted his own vice president. With his remarks, Pence solidified his place in a broader debate within the Republican Party over how to view the attack. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, for example, recently provided Tucker Carlson with an archive of security camera footage from January 6th, which the Fox News host has used to downplay the day's events and promote conspiracy theories. Make no mistake about it. What happened that day was a disgrace, Pence said in his gridiron dinner remarks and it mocks decency to portray it any other way. Speeches at the gridiron dinner are usually humorous affairs where politicians poke fun at each other, and Pence did plenty of that as well. He joked that Trump's ego was so fragile, he wanted his vice president to sing Wind Beneath My Wings. One of the lines is, Did you ever know that you're my hero during their weekly lunches? He took another shot at Trump over classified documents. I read that some of those classified documents they found at Mar-a-Lago were actually stuck in the president's Bible, Pence said, which proves he had absolutely no idea they were there. Even before the dinner was over, Pence was facing criticism for his jokes about Transportation Secretary Buttigieg, the first openly gay cabinet member in U.S. history. Pence mentioned that despite travel plans that were plaguing Americans, Buttigieg took maternity leave after he and his husband adopted newborn twins. McCarthy spurns Biden's budget, says, don't play with debt ceiling, from the Washington Examiner. House Speaker Kevin McCarthy panned President Joe Biden's roughly $6.9 trillion budget proposal as not serious, and warned him not to play games with the debt ceiling. McCarthy contended that Biden's budget proposal would be dead on arrival in the House and speculated that even Democrats won't even vote for this. The California Republican also reiterated his longstanding calls for Biden to negotiate a budgeting agreement with him to avert a debt ceiling crisis. This budget talks more about equality and climate change than it does dealing with China, dealing with fentanyl, 
dealing with putting our workforce back in the workplace. This is a real challenge, McCarthy said, on Fox News' Sunday Morning Futures with Maria Bartiromo. To have a non-serious budget and for a president not to show the leadership to sit down and solve this problem early on weakens America, McCarthy said. Biden's roughly $6.9 trillion budget released last week was an opening act in the looming budget showdown with Republicans. It outlined a slew of wish list items, such as bolstered spending for Medicare and Social Security, as well as a revival of Build Back Better agenda items, such as prescription drug reform, child care spending, community college funding, and more. The White House estimates the budget proposal would reduce the deficit by $2.9 trillion by 2033. The budget features a myriad of tax increase measures, including on capital gains, billionaires, and corporations, measures that have been roundly scored by Republicans. Biden has criticized Republicans for not presenting a budget of their own. McCarthy has not laid out a clear timeline for presenting an alternative, but Budget Chairman Jody Arrington, Republican Texas, has indicated the panel will likely be unable to meet the April 15th deadline to adopt a budget resolution. Don't play games with the debt ceiling. I've sat with this president. I want to negotiate with this president. This is what we've done every time before an American public wants us to, McCarthy added. Republicans and Democrats have been at odds over how to in increase the $31.4 trillion debt ceiling, which was reached in January. The Treasury Department has undergone extraordinary measures of moving money around from government accounts to keep payments flowing, but those techniques are expected to run their course by June. The President previously insisted that he would not negotiate with McCarthy and demanded a clean debt ceiling bill, though he has met with McCarthy to discuss the debt ceiling. Republicans have sought to pair an increase in the debt limit with a clawback in federal spending. Congress approved spending measures last year that rely on over $1 trillion in deficit spending. Should the United States fail to increase its borrowing authority, there is a risk of defaulting on the national debt, which could unleash havoc upon the economy. Eight migrants dead after boat capsizes. A suspected smuggling boat capsized in the ocean off Black's Beach in the Torrey Peaks area late Saturday, dumping eight to ten people into the water, eight of whom died, officials said. A second panga carried eight people made it to shore successfully, officials said. Officials learned of the incident when a woman on the boat that arrived safely called 911 around 11.30 to say the second boat had capsized and people were in the water. According to San Diego police, the woman told the dispatcher she had traveled into the U.S. from Mexico in the boat. A lifeguard dispatcher used GPS coordinates from the woman's cell phone to pinpoint the location to around 800 yards north of the base of Black Gold Road, south of Torrey Pines Gliderport, San Diego Fire Rescue officials said. U.S. Iran's prisoner swap claim a lie. Iran's top diplomat claims a prisoner swap is near with the U.S., though he has offered no evidence to support his assertion. U.S. officials immediately dismissed his comments as a cruel lie. Iranian Foreign, 
Foreign Minister Abi Dohayan has made similar comments in the past about possible deals with the U.S. on frozen assets abroad and other issues that never came to fruition. He made the remarks Sunday to Iranian state television. U.S. State Department spokesperson Ned Price called the remarks a cruel lie when reached by the Associated Press. Three sued for helping get abortion pills. A Texas man has filed a wrongful death lawsuit accusing three women of helping his ex-wife obtain abortion pills in one of the first major legal challenges under a state abortion ban since the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. Plaintiff Marcus Silva filed the lawsuit on Thursday in Galveston County, Texas, alleging that three Texas women are liable for wrongful death because they helped his ex-wife obtain abortion pills to terminate a pregnancy in July 2022. The civil lawsuit is seeking damages of $1 million against each woman. Since the court overturned Roe v. Wade in June 2022, eliminating federal abortion rights, Texas has been one of about a dozen states that has enforced a total abortion ban. It is illegal to aid or abet abortions in Texas, which the lawsuit claims defendants Jackie Noyola, Amy Carpenter, and Araceli Garcia did. The defendants could not be immediately reached for comment. From the obituary page, Nelson Burton, July 24, 1929 to February 23, 2023. A more memorial service will be held 10.30 a.m. Saturday, March 18th, at the First United Methodist Church, 420 North Nevada Avenue, in the Lemberg Chapel. Thank you for joining us for the Gazette. AINC programming is brought to you in part by Wana Brands, enhancing customers' lives through the responsible use of cannabis. AINC presents your low vision resource of the day. Today we would like to highlight the Division of Vocational Rehabilitation. This organization helps individuals with disabilities prepare for, obtain, advance in, and maintain employment. Learn more by visiting www.colorado.gov slash pacific slash dvr slash services dash dvr or by calling 303-866-2500 or emailing cdle underscore voc dot rehab at state dot co dot us. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777. You're listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado.